Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. In this session, Reawakening the Past, which was recorded at the 2019 festival, Claire Coleman, Jock Sarong and Claire Wright explore the challenges of writing history based on previously unheard voices. Your host is Julie McIntyre. So I'm just going to introduce the three of them first. So Claire G. Coleman, I do love the middle initial, is a Wolomon Noongar woman from Western Australia. Her family is associated with the area around Ravensthorpe and Hopetown. She grew up in the middle of a tree plantation where her dad worked. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> How interesting is that? Claire wrote her black and white fellowship winning book, Terra Nullius, while travelling around Australia in a caravan. I found this really interesting when reading the book, actually. The novel's been short and long listed for a number of awards, including the 2008 Stella Prize and the 2017 Aurelius Prize for a science fiction novel. Jock Sarong, who is apparently the jock between two Claire's, <laughs> was what was established. <laughs> In the Make green that room. What you will. <laughs> <laughs> is so Jock is the author of Quota, winner of the 2015 Ned Kelly Award for Best First Fiction, The Rules of Backyard Cricket, shortlisted for the 2017 Victorian Premier's Award for Fiction, finalist of the 2017 MWA Edgar Awards for Best Paperback Original, and finalist of the 2017 Indies Adult Mystery Book of the Year on the Java Ridge, and shortlisted for the 2018 Indie Awards, and his new book is Preservation. The wonderful Claire right here is an award-winning historian. Don't you just feel the awards kind of <laughs> <laughs> weighing so beautifully here? And author who has worked as an academic, political speech writer, historical consultant, and radio and television broadcaster. She does some amazing work. Her book, The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka, won the 2014 Stella Prize. Here we go, all the prizes, I love this. The 2014 NIB Award for Literature and was shortlisted for many other awards. Her most recent book is You Daughters of Freedom, The Australians Who Won the Vote and Inspired the World. Um, now, what I'd first like to talk about for a minute is that each of these books take the reader deeply into the lives and sometimes the minds of people who up until two generations ago were almost completely overlooked in Australian history or who were treated stereotypically. So Aboriginal people, white women and non-white, non-Indigenous people. So up till the 1960s, Australian history as an academic field was really in its infancy and it began as a story of triumphant and sometimes not so triumphant white men. There were novels about Australia from much earlier and they do contain a wide array of Australian characters, but rarely were people who weren't white men the speakers in these stories. So that's changed. And new books by each of these authors are among genuinely the most exciting that I've read that illuminate and animate voices that we need to hear from the past. So I'm just going to ask each of you first <coughs> to talk a little bit about um, something from the stories that you were seeking to tell, just to warm us up, um, in terms of voices that had been left out of the record before. So, um, Claire, starting with you, okay. um, women as uh, political activists are, are well known, but nonetheless, I was really surprised to read your book and loved that you said you were surprised as you began to tell this story. So what, what was it that you really hoped that we would now understand better 
that was not written in the record before when you wrote the book. So I guess the characters in my story are, uh, are in a sense doubly marginalised. Um, and let me start by saying they're white women, so their marginalisation is not as, uh, in, in a sense, as profound as uh, a number of other women who I could be writing about and who I will be in my next book, um, Indigenous Women in Australia. But the, um, the way in which these women had been marginalised from history was that the women that I wanted to write about, the story I wanted to tell, was the role of Australian female suffragists uh, who had played a part in the British suffragette movement. And so the way that in which that's a kind of double silencing is that Australian women had generally not been written into the records um, in terms of history writing as as nation makers, as nation builders, our, our stories of our kind of big celebratory nationalist narratives about nation building have been um, from the perspective of the male protagonists. So in the first instance, there's that story to tell, how women were involved in this Federation era history that has made the nation what it is for better and for worse. Then there was a second level, which is that the British suffragette movement is actually reasonably well known, particularly in Britain. But if people here were asked to recount something of what they know about the suffrage movement of the turn of the 20th century, where women did get the right to vote, they are probably more likely to know something about British suffragettes than Australian suffragists. Um, the distinction there being that suffragists, are, it, it's a political position, basically anybody who believes and, and, and works for women getting the vote. So men can be suffragists as well. Suffragettes were women who were part of a uh, particular British um, suffrage organisations at a particular time. So it's a very historically specific um, field. So, you know, that movie with Meryl Streep in it, when she plays Emmeline Pankhurst, you know, people might know Emmeline Pankhurst, they might know Emily Wilding Davidson, who threw herself in front of the horse um, at um, the races and was killed. They might know the window smashing and the stone throwing. But uh, it's very much less likely that they will know the role that Australian women played in leading and inspiring that movement in the first place. And that's what I the story that I really set about to tell and that surprised me so much in researching it because uh, I myself was surprised at how prominent they were. And indeed, uh, the broader story that the book ends up telling it's not about women specifically, but it's about Australia more generally in terms of Australia's world-leading role in progressive politics at this time. The fact that the rest of the world looked to Australia for its political lead um, as the, the, the light on the hill, the beacon of the world, um, and that Australians themselves were so incredibly proud of this and, and um, were so self-conscious about they were the role that they were playing in world history, something we don't tend to associate with Australians now. Kiwis. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, yeah, the book is wonderful for that, for that reason. It just provides us with some hope, that kind of memory, actually. Jock, um, so what was it about stories that hadn't been told first that led you to choose the particular um, plot and characters and places in preservation? Yeah. Um, it's funny, I think one of the earliest conversations I had with a, a fellow author about writing this book was with Claire. Mm. 
And I, I, she must have asked me, you know, what are you writing? And I explained the plot and I said, look, I'm petrified. I've got this story where there's 55 blokes on a boat. Um, you know, how on earth do I make this story more interesting than 55 blokes on a boat? Um, and it turns out there's a number of answers to that. Um, and, and I think your answer would have been something very sage at the time, like, you know, you must find a way, grasshopper. Um, <laughs> so you do, you know. <laughs> um, I think my answer was, if there aren't women on the boat, don't put them on that boat. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you're quite right, actually, yeah. Um, so that I guess the three ways that I, I tried to address that structural problem were firstly that um, of the 55 blokes, something like 34 or 35 of them were Lascars. And Lascars were indentured Asian sailors who the British particularly used as the kind of human engine of their trade. And these people were um, Chinese, Indian, Malays, Javanese, all sorts of nationalities, all sorts of religions. Um, and they were paid one ninth of what a British sailor was paid and they were fed the scraps um, there there's an interesting history of Lascar rebellions through history where they've mutinied and been prosecuted. Um, so talking about the Lascars as a study in ethnicity was probably the first thing. Um, the second thing, of course, was the Aboriginal history of the south coast of New South Wales. Um, and, and there's so much to talk about there because you're talking about two separate nations, six separate tribes in southern New South Wales. Um, differences of language um, and, and of custom and those things of course mean that for strangers blundering through that land they're going to make a whole host of mistakes and, and the consequences will flow from that. Um, and then the third thing I guess was that um, I, I came up with Lieutenant Grayling as a character in order to have somebody to interrogate the survivors of this, this actual shipwreck um, and to find out what had happened and, and to, to study the inconsistencies in their stories. Um, I was thinking of a model like uh, the way Umberto Eco wrote The Name of the Rose, where you have sort of two sleuths who interrogate each other. So um, the really handy way to do that was to have Grayling in this relationship with his wife where she's probably quite a bit smarter than he is, but of course um, the structures of that society mean that she has to always show deference to her husband and so she sort of suggests to him, had you thought about it perhaps this way? Um, and he'll say, of course I have. Um, as blokes do. And um, <laughs> so that gave me a way of kind of uh, having a foil against his version of what he thought had gone on. And um, the other important thing with Charlotte is that this is a middle class woman in early colonial society, which is a voice that um, really doesn't appear in accounts. We have voices of people like Elizabeth MacArthur, um, but for the ordinary woman who was caught within the strictures of colonial society and being a particular way and dressing a particular way and talking a particular way. Um, that was an interesting thing to mess around with because it meant that um, any deviation from the norm was extremely seditious for someone like that. Um, so suddenly, you know, you can crack open the 55 blokes on a boat thing and actually go in some interesting directions. So you found a way to put a really interesting woman into the story even though she wasn't on the boat. Well done, Jock. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't say I couldn't put her on land. No, <laughs> and Charlotte is an absolutely terrific mm. character too. So Claire, tell us what it was that, um, just to give everyone who hasn't read the book yet but surely will, an overarching sense of what it was that you were hoping to recover here from the past. Well... When I, when I came up with the, the notion that was to become the novel Terminalius, I'd been hearing a lot of people say um, that um, Aboriginal people should just get over the colonisation. 
you hear it all the time, oh, just get over it, it was 200 years ago. Um, and of course, so I was trying to think of a, a way to, to unpack that so that people would understand how hard it is to get over it, how, how something can be so overwhelmingly destructive that maybe it's impossible to get over it or that it will take more than, say, 10 generations to get over it. And also, there's also the fact that there are people still alive who were the first people of their tribe to see white people. Uh, because in some parts of Australia, the colonizers didn't get there till the 80s, which is, a, that's a story that's never told. They think, people think 1788, Australia changed. No, it didn't. Some places it didn't change to 1986. And in my ancestral country, the first white people got there was 1896. So that's, my, my uh, great-grandmother, my great-great-grandmother, hang on. <laughs> my you know, my, my great-great-grandmother um, was there when the white people came for the first time into our country. And finding out that story, it, it, it gave me a position to kind of, to try and uh, unpack using my own family history, how it would have felt to have people come and just kick you off your land and say it's not yours anymore. And um, the idea of how to write Terminalis to do that came to me in a flash, like all of a sudden, and it was, from then on, it was um, all hands on deck, write as fast as possible before I forget. <laughs> ah, very good. Well, there were some tremendous surprises um, buried in part of the way through Terminalis that, that I wasn't expecting at all, that precisely deliver what it was that you hoped to do, and we will get to that shortly. So um, each of these books is bound so closely to the real historical record, um, the, the documents that we, uh, as historians, or people writing historical fiction, um, use to read and interpret uh, and write history. And also, um, particularly in Claire's book, is the idea of the, the power of the archive. So uh, for each of you, I'm curious about the kind of documents that really stood out for you in trying to achieve what it was that you just were telling us um, was going to be what you hoped the book would deliver. Thank Starting you with you, actually, let's be demo. Yeah, we'll go this way again, Claire. Yeah, okay. is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for the opportunity to talk about archives um, because <laughs> now that allows me to go straight to peak nerd. Um, I, I am actually. Uh, making a, a podcast series with a colleague of mine at La Trobe University at the moment that's called Archive Fever. And that expression is taken from a Jacques Derrida um, essay called Archive Fever. I never understood a word of Derrida at university, but I did like that phrase, Archive Fever. And it's actually the feeling that you get when you're immersed in the archive uh, that is unlike anything else. It's and how he describes it is it's... Um, it's a, it's a compulsion, and he also calls it a homecoming. And I've always thought it's great that I'm an historian because I'd be a terrible at the pokies. I'd be a shocking addict, you know. Just one more search, one more search um, to, to find those hidden nuggets. So the archives are incredibly important to what I do because I think it's really important to separate um, two, two ideas. One of them is the past, and the, then the other one of them is history. So the past is, is uh, a time concept, and history is a human construct. History is the stories that we tell about the past. Uh, so you can see very easily that women haven't been written into history, but of course women were part of the past. And so the ways in which to find them is to go back to the archives. 
and not worry about reading the, um, the histories that have been written um, from that point on. And this was the uh, example that, that was really very clear to me from writing The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka, because in 150 years of the historiography of that story, women hadn't appeared, and yet there they were um, throughout the archives because they actually were there present at, at on the gold fields. Now, this book was slightly different because it was a story that was already about women in the first instance, suffrage. So we know that they're there. We know that they are uh, making this, this impact. But for me, it was still about going right back to the sources and telling the story in the, the protagonist's words as much as possible. And the way that I, the, the sort of method that I um, chose to do that with uh, in the Eureka book, which was a bit, I was playing around with it then, wasn't sure whether it would work, but it did, and so I've replicated it here, actually takes its lead from novel writing. Um, I took my lead from Kate Grenville um, in The Secret River, where she writes all of her dialogue in italics. So what I decided to try to do was to put all the primary source quotes in italics so that you um, have a more seamless sense of the past speaking to you, rather than having um, a, a more delineated sense of the historian choosing um, a, a piece of archive and sticking it there between quote marks and al alerting you to the fact that there is this, um, this fracturing between past and present. So I, I found that writing the archive um, in this particular way, makes for a more uh, sort of seamless transition. And I think of myself more as being a kind of conductor of voices, rather than the omniscient historian who already knows what's going to happen and is kind of looking back on it. I try to write from the position of the people themselves, uh, because they are in the process of making history. They don't know that they've done it yet. They're just going about their lives. They're making choices about what they're going to do next and, you know, that they're going to get on a boat and they're going to go to London, but they don't know what's going to happen in London or that they're going to go and they're going to chain themselves to the grill of the House of Commons. That might be a plan, but, but Muriel Matters doesn't know what's going to happen next. So I feel like as the historian, nor should I know what's going to happen next, nor should the readers know what's going to happen next. It's a more novelistic and a more um, filmic sense of time playing out um, and living in the character's shoes and watching it play out from their point of view. Um, but where it differs from a novelist is that my pact with the readers is that I never make anything up. So I very often would like to put somebody into the drama who was not there because it might make the story play out better, give me more opportunities for tension between characters. But if they're not there in the archive, if they, there's not a documentary source that tells me that this person did that or said that, I can't use it. So it's, um, it's kind of the, the crafting of those, weaving together of those voices um, without, um, I hope, putting too much of a stamp of um, my own sense of argument about what's going on and more particularly the significance of what's going on. Mm. So we have an historian writing narrative nonfiction here and then two novelists 
Um, but did the archive play a role for you? So I'm going to ask you first, Doc, you said you had this story of the 55 blokes on a boat. Mm. Was the story from uh, a, an archival document or was it from um, somewhere else? And, mm. di and did you go into the archive at all? A little bit. Um, there's very, very little written work um, to use here. Th what there is, is one of the three survivors of the Sydney Cove wreck, a guy called William Clark, kept a diary. Um, even after he was speared through both hands and could no longer write, he somehow scratched out a few words. Um, the diary disappeared and then reappeared as a paraphrase by um, a journalist in India about six months after Clark had fled back to Calcutta. So we have this one document, which is, <laughs> pardon the pun, full of holes. Um, it uh, makes no sense in lots and lots of ways. And so what I wanted to do with that document as a source was you've got Grayling quizzing Clark in his hospital bed. Why did you write this? Why did you write that? With this diary in his hands before him. And I kept putting excerpts of the diary into the story. Um, Grayling would read it to Clark and then ask Clark to explain. But as the drafts went back and forth between me and my editor, Mandy Brett, she kept correcting the spelling in the diary extracts and I kept recorrecting them back to what Clark had used. And after a while, I think she rang me up. She said, why do you keep doing that? I said, this is actually what the diary said. And she was staggered. And, and it led to this really interesting discussion about how wildly um, improbable this diary was. But it's the primary source that you've got for this story. So how do you use this really unreliable base? Um, there was that really as the sum total of the written documents. But what was much more important to me in the story were a number of physical artefacts, one of which is the wreck. The wreck tells you lots and lots about the story and it can't be argued with. I, it has no subjectivity to it. it it's a physical thing. It's and wrecked or it's not wrecked. Yeah. And, and so the wreck was found in 1977. So it had been on the bottom for whatever that is, 200 years, 220 years. And um, it is in the Queen Victoria Museum in Launceston because the year before the wreck was found, Tasmania passed the first state legislation protecting shipwrecks. So it's just one of those beautiful serendipities of history. And it was really well collected and preserved and studied. And um, they've done all this work on the wreck. For <coughs> instance, between the inner hull and the outer hull, they used um, animal hides as a lining so that the timbers wouldn't rub away on each other. And the animal hides have been DNA profiled, so we now know where the sheep came from. Mm. Um, the bottles, there, there were beer bottles that, um, and all of the timbers, of course, have been taken back to their source in various forests. Um, the beer bottles, the, the seals had failed and all the beer was gone, but they managed to get, you know, that sort of sedimenty sludge you might get in the corner of a beer. Um, someone has gone and scraped that out at Launceston and DNA profiled the hops and the yeast and remade the beer. And there was a brief period when you could buy this stuff and... Um, of course, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just interested in free beer. I <laughs> wrote to the brewer and said, you know, I've written this novel about the shipwreck and um, you've made this beer and I think there are some synergies here. <laughs> you should give me some beer. You should give me some beer. <laughs> but I tried to, you know, I tried to couch it in kind of studious terms. 
You um, should give me some beer, please. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and they wrote back and said, look, the beer sold out in two weeks and that's that. So that was the end of But we need to know, will they remake some of this beer? I mean, for, no, for historians, this is one of those things mm. about bringing something alive that you don't expect. You can awaken from the past. Yeah, yeah. Archival but beer. Oh, it's just <laughs> tremendous. <laughs> but more seriously, the landscape itself was an artefact that I was able to use in the story. And there's great writing about landscape and about Aboriginal fire management of landscape and agriculture and I was really lucky to be telling this story in the months after um, Bruce Pascoe had released Dark Emu. So there were all these great, uh, and then I, I hesitate to say new ways of thinking about landscape because these things existed the whole time, it was just that somebody thought to write them down and discuss them. And, and so I had the benefit of looking at Dark Emu and thinking about how that informed landscape writing. There's also a book called The Biggest Estate on Earth, which, which really focuses on fire management. Um, and so that, what that allowed me to do as an outsider was to think about what my characters would have been seeing. Um, what did this landscape look like? It didn't look like the one we're looking at now. And I did a lot of walking to think about that, but um, I had to try and think about, you know, um, how had it been managed such that the understory was burnt clear, there were things planted, there was management of game, um, and so that's a really, really rich resource to work with. And again, in a sense, it can't be argued with. It's objectively there. Um, and that's what you want as, as someone who's making up stories, is to start with this sort of bedrock. Mm, and um, the archive uh, for historians doesn't just exist between four walls anymore. The idea of being able to read um, all sorts of different things is just fascinating. But um, Claire's done something terrifically subversive that um, that I adore as an historian and kind of made up the archive. I did. I invented an entire <laughs> archive. <laughs> we, and so convincingly. So can I... Did you... I have to ask first, before you talk about this, because this is one of the really magical things about your book. Though first, did you look at actual documents? And is, are the, did you sort of imitate them at all? Um, I, I think if you spoke to almost any Indigenous writer or scholar in Australia, they would tell you they don't have to actually go out and look at the archive. Because if you look at your own family records, that's the archive. To find out what happened to your grandmother or your great-grandmother, you're looking at the archive. So I was at the s that stage so embedded in the archive and in reading um, old non-fiction books about Aboriginal people, which are so full of shit, it's ridiculous, that when I went to write my false archive, um, it was actually really, e really easy. It's actually easier than you think, which is a bit concerning, really. <laughs> <laughs> it's really easy to write um, something like, you just got to pick, th to write the language of, of archive, the, one of the sources I use is actually um, War of the Worlds, because War of the Worlds, the novel, is written like archive. He was a journalist writing the story of the invasion like it's writing in the past. So if you want to write a false archive, just read War of the Worlds. It gives you a really good clue how to do it. Uh, but once you've read enough archive, it's really easy just to imitate the language. If you can imitate 19th century language, it's really easy to fake the archive. And um, I think we've seen, I, I did a, um, a lecture on this recently, I think we're all aware of the danger of that now. Because um, you get people now lying about history online and giving false archive sources that they've made up and getting away with it because no one can check. And um, so it's a, bit, it's a bit concerning. But yeah, I, I, just, I wanted an archive that fit my story a bit more closely. 
Well, you can do that in a novel. That's the tremendous thing. And false psychosis has been a part of speculative fiction for as long as there's been speculative fiction. Every speculative fiction author or science fiction author or fantasy author, they make up their own history to go with their story and they write the archive. They might just write it for themselves or they might write it for their story, but it's always there. So I suppose if you're going to write it, you might as well use it. Mm, well, I was convinced until I uh, started <laughs> to occur to me that maybe I should check. And there, there are some clues in the book about that. Um, now, you uh, have all written some of the most memorable characters I've met on the page. Uh, and I'm just going to name one from each of your books that stayed with me. Um, <coughs> so Claire writes Vita Goldstein saying to Rose Scott in a letter that her class privilege, that's Rose Scott's class privilege, was something that Vita Goldstein did not share. Um, was a really fascinating moment uh, because Rose Scott was from Newcastle in the Hunter Valley and I've written a little bit about her. and. I understood she was privileged, uh, but that, that was a really jolting moment to understand about that. Um, and um, Claire's sister, Bagra, whose experience really frames the novel, I loathed, but also had tremendous empathy for her. I Everyone loves and hates her at the same time, including oh, me. You've, <laughs> you've written somebody who you just, I mean, you understand her so well. Um, uh, but anyway, I, I want you to talk about some of your other characters, not for me to talk about them. But um, now, actually, there's two characters of Jocks I'm going to mention. Um, one is the white man we know as Fig, who is utterly vile and <laughs> possibly... My, have you read the book yet? Yeah, you just loathe them. You don't love and loathe them, you just loathe oh, them. Oh, <laughs> he actually, yeah. So yeah. I, um, I'd like to ask you, you know, maybe answer in a minute, do you know someone like that? I mean, where in your mind did this character come from? <laughs> and um, the other one, of course, is um, Srinivas, who's a Lascar. Um, and uh, I love that we hear from him, we hear his thoughts all the way through the novel, but we hear his voice later mm. in a way that's really unexpected. So um, so having in, indulged me to, to say the characters I really, um, really kind of loved and hated, um, and when you hate them, that means in a curious way you still love them, doesn't it? Um, I, we're going to go this way again. Okay. And I'm just really interested about who from this book mm. yourself mm. would be is if there's one character mm. or do you feel that there's an ensemble mm. that will stay really stay with you yeah so the book follows five women through uh, their journeys um, Vida Goldstein as you said Dora Montefiore Muriel Matters Nellie Martell and Dora Meeson Coates and before I started this book I really only knew anything about Vida Goldstein um, she's probably of those five, the one who, who has had the most written about her. Uh, but I'd also written about her, I'd written her into two television documentaries that I'd written. Um, one, Utopia Girls, uh, that came out on the ABC 2012, which was about how women got the vote in Australia. Uh, and she was the fifth character out of five then, the others were all older than, than, than her. So in that documentary, her journey ended at 1902 when Australian women won the right to vote and the right to stand for parliament, the first in the world to do so. And then I wrote about her again in The War That Changed Us, a four-part documentary series that I made for the ABC that was about Australian, um, Australia's role in World War I. And she reappears because she becomes a very prominent anti-war activist and peace campaigner and anti-conscription activist during the First World War. So I knew quite a lot about her. 
Um, and it was the other women who really fascinated me in a sense. I mean, Vida's kind of like part of the family for me now. <laughs> Um, but, um, and it, it's difficult to actually sort of nominate a favourite because it is a little bit like a family situation. You know, you're not supposed to have your favourite child. And, um, and I probably shouldn't have a favourite character, but I can say the one that I was most fascinated by was Dora Montefiore. Um, she was just such a gun of a woman, so strong and, and, and um, so um, gnarly and so bolshy. Uh, you know, she started this, this movement in Britain, um, there were two movements in Britain. One was an anti-tax res uh, tax resistance league where she refused to pay her tax because she said in Australia where she had started the first uh, um, women's suffrage association in New South Wales. She owned property and she paid tax but that's okay because she got a vote for it. But then once she went back to England she paid tax but, but got no representation for her taxation, which was effectively anti-democratic, so she just refused to pay tax. Um, and she bailed herself up in her house for six weeks, um, you know, um, taunting the bailiffs to come in and start to repossess her furniture to, as um, distress for her. And she was just, she was amazing. And then she started this anti-census resistance because that was so interesting. Where she encouraged people not to fill out, women not to fill out the census. And that became a massive movement in Britain in, in 1911. So Dora was really fascinating. She was a woman of the world. She was a socialist. She spoke many languages. She represented Australia um, in this, the Australian Communist Party. And, and, I, and I really did love her. But I I'm just want to say one more thing. I'm, I'm interested that you picked up that particular exchange between Vida Goldstein and Rose Scott, where Vida points out her class difference from Rose. And indeed, Vida was very well brought up. She went to PLC. Her mother was of um, Scots Presbyterian squatocracy. But um, she did still have to work for a living, unlike Rose Scott. But one of the reasons that I wanted to have five characters and to tell their interweaving stories was to make the point that the women's movement was a si wasn't a singular um, uh, you know, unifor uniform, and there was no such word at the time as intersectional, but that idea that you can have multiple identities and you come from different class positions and, and ethnic positions and religious positions and that that all informs your activism. So, so one, I wanted to give the impression that it wasn't uh, a movement of individuals who were going to change the world. It wasn't an American movie where you have you know, the greatest American hero is going to come and save the planet. It was a collective movement. Um, change has always occurred. Political change has always occurred through collectivism. And the women's suffrage movement was no different. So there needed to be more than one single hero that we followed through. And also to show just how different these, these women were, that they were separated by class um, as much as so many other things. And indeed, Vida found that when she stood for parliament in 1903 and mm -hmm. didn't win, it was a shock to her to realise that, that women um, would vote according to their class, not their sex, and that women didn't vote for her. Uh, it's and the finer grains that you tease out in that respect are just crucial here because mm. it's it is very easy to essentialise mm. the idea exactly. of the women's movement. That's the word I was looking for. Thank you. No, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> now, Jock, this mm. evil character you've written, um, <laughs> Fig is is hideous. Um, would you like to just answer for yourself about that for a moment? Yeah, and is yeah. he the one who'll stay with you though? 
yes, and, and um, I don't know what this says about me, but Fig was the easiest one to write. Um, <laughs> well, there to you go. To go back <laughs> to, first <laughs> to first principles, y you have three survivors of this overland walk, uh, and it seems reasonable to me to assume that they were all in beds recovering and being questioned about what they'd seen because they'd walked through country that no, none of the settlers had yet been to. And um, accordingly, I must have had a lot of valuable information. So I started writing this book with the structure that they were being questioned and that different voices were talking. And, and I needed early on to differentiate those people from each other. Um, so I had Srinivas, who's, who in the actual record is described as a Lascar boy who was Clark's manservant, and that's all we've got. Um, I had Clark himself, who was a merchant, and then the third survivor was a guy called John Bennett, um, who is not described at all. So I had room to move there with the third survivor. Um, as they started talking, these different characters came out. And it only occurred to me a long way into the book that what I was writing was three different ideas about European arrival, that um, Srinivas is a wide-eyed kid who looks at the world around him with wonder and optimism. Um, despite his ordeal, he's amazed by what he's seen. Um, then you have Clark the merchant who is looking at everything with the eyes of, of commerce. How can I use this thing? Um, quite remorseless, um, quite clinical about it. Um, these are everything that I see is a resource. It can further my ambitions. I'm here to exploit it. And then you've got Fig, who's just a straight-up sadist. A and that, that was three ways of looking at Europeans moving into the landscape and dealing with Aboriginal people. So I wanted to um, have each of them go out in those directions. But Fig himself probably starts from um, practising criminal law that um, I represented and prosecuted a lot of different people. And um, the, the overwhelming rule with those people were that they were ordinary people who had either had a bad night or had made a series of bad decisions. And you could normally identify them pretty easily. The notion of this kind of um, inchoate, innate evil is really, really rare and, and almost statistically worthless. Um, but every now and then you hit one who you just thought, good Lord, there's nothing behind those eyes. And um, it's an intriguing idea. A and there was a particular guy, I was involved in a prosecution of a guy for murder and the police had recorded 2,000 hours of listening devices on this bloke. And th you know, the, the cops who do these things are very hardened people and not much surprises them. But I remember the thing that really rattled them was that he was talking about other things he'd done and they had no idea what or when he was talking about. And that, so that was the first thing, that they had a very strong idea that he had done other really evil things, but they had no idea where to find them. Um, but also that they had gone back into his life. He was 48 at the time they prosecuted him. And they had worked out who he was back to about 20 and then they lost him. Um, and the idea that somebody could come from nowhere was really intriguing to me. And I remember, again, talking to Mandy about this, about constructing a villain. She said to me, there's two rules with a villain, that A, they've got to have a purpose, and B, they've got to have a backstory. Um, and this is a villain with neither. He, he does evil things because he wants to do evil things, and he has no past, but which I found disconcerting and really appealing. Um, and once I was writing him and I was comfortable with writing him and I had a feeling of where he was going, I started to see that he was an archetype and, and his kind of persona turns up everywhere. Um, the classic is, if you've read Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy, there's a character in that called Judge Holden and 
Um, Blood Meridian is, is it, it's essentially a Western. It's about a group of people walking across the frontier of America in the 1860s. Um, they are scalpers, and, and they're awful people in their own right. But they find this guy sitting on a salt pan in the desert, and he's seven feet tall, entirely hairless, and nude. And he appears to be asleep. And when they approach, they disturb him, and he wakes up. And he joins their party and commits all of these horrendous deeds. And then at the end of the book, he hasn't aged, um, and he disappears out of the story and, and sort of floats away. And um, he doesn't appear to experience hunger or thirst. Um, he, he doesn't experience fatigue. Uh, in a sense, he's not quite entirely mortal. And, and that character turns up, um, there's a book called The North Water, which came out a few years ago, uh, a character in that called Henry Drax. Um, that archetype, I think, is used a lot of, of an almost satanic presence. And here, I was trying to walk a very fine line between him being an ordinary person who was just a bastard um, or being someone who's not en entirely an ordinary human being and, and um, I'm hoping that what I've done is leave that a bit vague. Yeah there's something otherworldly about Fig and there are many reasons to keep turning the page in preservation. One of them for me was hoping a kind of Dexter-like character <laughs> would come along and destroy Fig. <laughs> 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 and. Um, uh, you'll have to read the book to find out whether that's what <laughs> happens. But yeah, so fascinating to know that you, you've captured a, a type of character who exists in the flesh and yet is sort of fleshless at and the same and time. It's interesting to me that often you don't know you've done that, that, that you're writing a character and they just make intrinsic sense to you. And it turns out that it is an archetype. So in a sense, the character is in all of our subconsciouses and it's, it's a matter of finding them. Um, and, and once you do, you know how they work. Well, he's very memorable. And so are so many of Clea Coleman's characters. There are so I also loved Esperance and yeah, and Johnny Starr. Well Johnny Starr is my favourite character. Ah. Well no Johnny Starr alone is my favourite character. Johnny Starr and Sergeant Rohan together are my yeah. favourite characters. Explain. Well I started writing them at about I think it was after the first draft when I was editing. What I realised is that they're essentially the same person with one important difference. They, that came back to, to my understanding of what evil is. They are, they're both, they're my favourite guys, they're, they're settlers, they're not, they're not my side, they're, they're supposed to be bad guys. But um, what's interesting about them is, the only difference between them is, Johnny Starr has empathy and compassion, and Rohan does not, for the natives. So it's like you've got these two people who are essentially the same, one of them, sees the native people as not people, and the other one does. And then I was able to explore how their paths and their, their identities would um, diverge based on this one simple change, which comes down to a concept from a Terry Pratchett book, which is evil start from viewing people as things. As soon as you view people as not people, you're ready to perform evil. If you see people as people, you can't hurt them. And so the difference between them is one of them, yeah, one of them sees the natives as people, the other sees the natives as animals or objects to, to torment or to, to hunt. So one of them, um, as right, if anyone has read it, one of them is um, helping the natives, the other one is hunting them. And the difference is whether or not they're people. And I, in my writing, I don't like characters who are evil incarnate. I don't find them, to me, I don't find them endearing. And I have to love all my characters, even the ones I hate. 
which means that for um, I had to have something about every villain that made sense of what what about of why they were a villain. They had to, it had to make sense to me logically. If I thought about thought through my emotions, what would make me do those horrible things they're doing? I had to make sense of why I do it. Which people say that like some of my my villains are horrible, and I say, well, in my understanding of Terranullius, because I'm, I'm, I came from nowhere. I have no training in writing. I just wrote. I've never done any training in not a single thing. I'm sorry, we can't speak anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had How do you not agonise about this? We all agonise about this, I, 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 um, <laughs> I walked into my first ever writer's workshop as the teacher. <laughs> <laughs> my first event as a writer was Melbourne Writers' Festival on the stage. So <laughs> I'd never been to a writer's festival. I, I literally was not part of the scene at all, complete outsider from writing. So now that I've recovered from that, I actually think that's also quite remarkable. Mm. And, and so clearly, you were, you were born to do this in Possibly, a way that's... Possibly, yeah. so. so I've um, got a Medusa's head. I was just trying to make, make them make sense for me. And I think because I'm so untrained, it could be said that all my characters are um, kind of archetypical aspects of me. And therefore, when people say my characters are horrible, <laughs> I think, well, what's in me then? Because I understand all of them. I understand every motivation of every character completely. Because all I have to do is, is strip back some of my civilization, and I can see all of them there. I don't know if everyone should be worried at this point. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I'm, I'm someone, I, I consider the human condition to be one of, of um, barely controlled um, lack of um, lack of control. Like we're, we're barely under. We're like humans are like things like a whole bunch of bad stuff, with niceness wrapped over the outside of it. And if you take one of the nice things away, some of the bad stuff trickles out. And that's how I write my villains. And and that's why I love Rohan because if if you think about somebody who's, if you think of essentially a police officer who's completely lost any ability to consider the people they're policing to be people, that's what you get. Mm. Get a total bastard. Mm, well, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about each of your narrative voices because you know you you are conjuring the past from the page, and and um, I'd actually like to stay with you on that for a second, Claire, because uh, Jackie's mobility in the book, mm -hmm. the fact that uh, there's a character who spends a fair bit of time running, and. Uh, that made more sense to me when I discovered that you'd written the book while you were travelling around in a yeah. caravan. Mm. So, have I overthought that, or was well, this? There were. I think there's there's two aspects. I wanted the um, the quintessential or generic um, native from 19th century fiction, and there's really only two native characters. Um, if you think about the 19th century stories, there's the person who's the noble savage. Or there's the um, 19th century and later fiction, or there's the the kid or bad person who's run away. You think about um, the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, which isn't 19th century, but it's, you know Jimmy Governor was an escaped um, escaped servant who happened to kill some people on his way to escaping, but that's neither here nor there. But the the escaped um, native prison native servant is a a common trope in Australian fiction. So. I decided to use that as my main character. And then, after, again, after my first edit, I went, actually, it wasn't even my first edit, it was my first ever writer's panel. Someone said, all your characters are running and you were travelling, does that mean something? 
And I thought, yes, it probably does. But I hadn't really thought about it because I don't overthink my writing. Actually, I don't think I think about writing. <laughs> <laughs> I think we could all learn something from this, actually. If that's how you're approaching it and the book is so fantastic, then that's, that's tremendous. Um, uh, actually, I'm, I had a plan, but I'm, I'm just going to shift it a little bit because um, I'd like to ask Claire a question and then come to Jock about something to do with the, the way he's written the materiality of his book. But the first thing I wanted to raise is... Um, Claire, you are such a distinctive and fearless narrator and it, as opposed to the novelists um, where they have inhabited the characters and we're, we're hearing or feeling the thoughts and the voices of the characters, you, you are in this book and there's a moment where um, actually you write that the shit had hit the fan <laughs> and, <laughs> and there, there's something really gloriously liberating as an historian about reading that because uh, we know we're so tied to the archive and you've already spoke so spoken so beautifully about the way that you kept the voices in terms of weaving them in in italics and then there are some block quotes as well. But, but what's your... Um, do you intend for us to hear you in there mm. so much? Because it, it works. Okay. Um, it, it's, it's really interesting. I, I don't intend for you to hear me. Um, as I said before, I feel like I'm more the conductor of these voices and I'm trying to... Um, um, my main intention is for my audience to get a sense of being there, to being, being in the time, to feeling them being, in a novelistic kind of way, on the streets of London or in Hyde Park where there's 500,000 people around you at a suffrage meeting. Um, or being pelted with peas and rocks um, with these women up on stages and being besieged. And, and that, that goes back to the archive in that I get so much pure and utter joy from my immersion in the archives that I want my readers to get some of that visceral sense of pleasure that I get. And... Um, you know, I love history. I love mm. doing history. I love writing history. I reckon history is fun. I reckon, I reckon that um, history is funny. You know, funny shit happens in history. And, uh, and, un sure does. and unfortunately, <laughs> so much of the time, the way that history is written about by historians just knocks the stuffing out of all of that fun. It becomes flat and lifeless and dispassionate when you have that, what we learn as academics, and it's kind of in the, the opposite of Claire's um, uh, experience of writing, which is just turn up and write, as academics we learn through our practice um, so much uh, discipline and, and, and we have to write sentences that you can drive a Mack truck through and they still bounce back at you. Um, because you have so many qualifications and you've shown that you've read every single thing that everybody's written on the topic and, 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 and when you're s constantly self-qualifying and you have a really self-conscious sense of yourself as the historian, I just think you lose that the, the life of your sources and also the, the, the thread of your story. So the things that I very much try to do is to, um, to privilege the narrative, 
to tell the story, beginning, middle, end, you know, um, to follow the trajectory of the characters and, and to see it from their perspective, as I said before. And then, and then also to, I, I, I suppose what you're saying when you have, you have a sense of me in it, um, somebody, somebody once described that to me as, it's quite conversational. They feel like they're having a conversation with me when they're reading it. And, uh, and I quite like that idea because that's how I feel when I'm telling the story. A little bit like drunk history. Does anybody read drunk? I mean, I don't <laughs> write drunk, <laughs> but... I do. <laughs> Maybe I should try it. But, you know, if you watch that show, Drunk History, and you don't get historians, it would actually be really fun to do drunk his history with historians who really know their stuff. I think we could um, probably make a time for that. Okay, let's do that. But, you know, when they have drunk history and they're telling the story of, you know, and then Washington went over and he said to them, you know, what the fuck are you doing, man? Why are you doing that? <laughs> like, it's funny, but actually at the time they probably did say it like that. So I say shit hit the fan because shit did hit the fan. And if I was just having a conversation with you at the pub about what Dora Montefiore and Nellie Martell did that day in Trafalgar Square, I might express it to you in those terms. So why leave that out of my book for the sake of being the kind of um, authoritative historian type person? Um, and, you know, it was scary when I started doing that, losing that sort of sense of my um, academic authority, in a sense, by using that kind of more contemporary language. But at the same time, I feel like my authority to tell the story is that I really know my shit really well. <laughs> I know that story inside you. out. <laughs> yeah. And I know those people and I know those sources because I've done the reading. But it doesn't mean that in conveying that story to you, it has to be boring. You remind me of um, David Hunt, who wrote Gert. Yeah, but he... Okay. Well. Do yeah. we differ on this? <laughs> <laughs> no, tell me how we differ. I, I found can that hysterically funny. <laughs> he is Big very funny. The way that we differ is that David Hunt has never walked into an archive in his life. Right. So, David, are you here, David? Neither have I. <laughs> neither have I. He maybe so needs to hear it if he is. Um, well, no, David and I have, we've, talk, we've talked this out. David reads the things that other historians have done, mm. and then he translates that into a more... I also think, and this is a gendered reading, a more locker room style of humour. Right. And I think his um, writing, no offence, Jock, I know you're a very enlightened man, <laughs> appeals much more to men than it does to women ah, okay. because he has a kind of jocular Eddie Maguire kind of take on Ooh, history. Ooh, that's harsh. Ooh. <laughs> Does anybody agree with me? <laughs> <laughs> I'll consider myself shot down on that one. <laughs> no, no, no. Eddie McGuire, I can't believe you did that. <laughs> that's, that's mean. Yeah. It was a good question, though, so it might make you feel better to ask you the last question. Mm. Uh, before we go to some questions, if you have them, we'll have about five minutes for questions, if you'd like to conjure some, that'd be terrific. It's, so in preservation, the way that... It's, it's going to be a bit serious, just for another mm. 240 seconds. Um, <laughs> Uh, in preservation, you you wrote the landscape and the ocean really beautifully. So, um, and I I did want to get to it, and I, we can't quite. But the way that that Claire Coleman spoke about water was this, this was really evocative as well. But you spoke about going to some of these places. Is there a sense for you of as you're writing 
embodying that? Are you, are you there? Do you write in those places? So um, probably not actually on ships that are about to wreck, for example. <laughs> that might be a bit over -authentic, overly authentic. But is, is there some sense of how it is that you, you write so knowingly? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I did try to travel a lot of the route through the coast and um, there were a couple of experiences I remember stayed with me. One was that I was somewhere near Wollongong and I had walked out onto a beach because I had this thing about sand grains sticking to feet and I wanted to see how big sand grains were and um, a mate rang me and he works for an accounting firm and he was, I don't know, 26 floors up a skyscraper and he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm near Wollongong and, and I'm just checking how sand sticks to my feet. <laughs> <laughs> and you could sort of hear the deflation in his voice. Yeah, good one. And, um, but the other thing was there was a... Um, I had decided I wanted to go out near Pambula and look around, particularly um, Twofold Bay and Ben Boyd around there because it's very important to the story. And um, the only way I could engineer it in terms of time and money was to call it a family holiday. So we all went to Pambula for a family holiday and then, um, how did this work? We must have taken two cars. This is horrific. You had a big extravagant. family. Uh, yeah. And um, so I think the rest of the family went Paint home. Paint us a picture, Jock. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> yeah. So you're in two cars. Two cars, yeah. There's a pot on the roof. Um, there's a lot of aquatic toys. <laughs> and um, everybody went home and, and it was explained to the kids as Dad's going to do some pottering around, which involved me driving into national parks and going for walks. But um, the, the holiday was the Easter long weekend and um, this was around Pambula and then down through, I don't know, Ulladulla and I've got all my geography wrong, but um, wound up on the 90 mile beach. And what struck me so forcefully was, I, it was particularly the Tuesday after Easter Monday that I was walking beaches and looking at um, sort of foreshore vegetation. I like to get that stuff right. And um, the wreckage of Easter was so incredibly mm. distressing the amount of crap in the car parks, on the beaches, um, the sort of storming of footprints all over everything, busted stuff, burnouts, I don't know. Um, I just felt like it, it was somehow a metaphor for the entire trammelling of the landscape, mm. you know? Here it was on the Tuesday after Easter when everybody's sunk their stubbies and gone home. Um, and and they, they can't be bothered taking their tent homes to leave it behind. Yeah, yeah, I slept in one, yeah. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, yeah, the, the damage is, is just extraordinary. And it means that the whole time when you're writing, you're trying to think of a 1797 coast and the, the, the act of projection is so difficult when you're looking at wreckage. Mm, but yet it's the way that you wrote it that reminds us what's been lost. Yeah, yeah, and indeed it's, it's part of, I mentioned in the back of the book that it's part of a PhD and the idea of the PhD is um, the notion of lost landscapes and, and when we grieve for what's gone, who's doing the grieving and what are we grieving for and, and where do you fix that lost point? Do you fix it at invasion? Do you fix it at the arrival of Aboriginal people on the continent? Um, there's a million places you can fix the notion of, of, of what got lost. Um, but it, it's something that I think is in all of us. E even if you're middle-aged and imagining the, the seaside holiday of your childhood, it's the same process. You know, it used to be so much bigger, or it used to be sunnier, or it used to, it used to catch fish, whatever that thing is. Um, and, and there's a lot of me kind of grieving for that coast in the book, I think, somewhere. These are people who would have been looking at their feet. They were trying to survive. They were not interested in the birds in the trees. But I am, and, and in a sense it's artificial to jam that stuff into the narrative, but I felt like it needed to be there. 
Mm. Well, yeah, it's it's mm. just beautiful. Um, and I loved the way that, um, I just do have to say it, that Claire reminded us about the value of water too. It's just, it's uh, so water's not a character in Terranilius, but um, there's, a, there's a sense always of the possibility that we will lose it. it it's funny because um, I, I just, when you mentioned water, I was just thinking I'm editing my second novel. Like yeah, good, get on with right that. Now. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, it's, it's coming out in September, so you don't have to wait long. Um, it's water's a character in that one too, so I think it's, a, I think it's fixated on my brain. Well, that makes sense and in, in Australia. In my second novel, water is a hero and a villain. Well. And you talk about water and fire at one stage, about them being the, the twin needs. Yeah, they are. They're, they are the twin needs. You can't, without water and fire, we're dead, really. I agree, I agree. And um, uh, we have stolen all of the time that you might have had to ask questions. We actually have 60 seconds left. <laughs> so uh, there, make, it, there make it good. Yeah, so there, <laughs> during the, the book signings, you might be interested to, to press your question onto the willing authors. If you have a copy of their book in your hands, I'm sure they'll be happy to answer any of your questions. Are there any, where's the microphone? Okay, um, any quick questions? E anyone eager to? Yes, <laughs> Pip McGuinness, will you wait for a microphone, please, Pip, so that we can, this way we can capture your lovely voice on the recording. Hi, thanks everyone. I found that absolutely engrossing. Um, I'm, I know that Claire Coleman's book is being published in the US. I imagine Jock's will probably sell overseas. I'm really interested mm. to, know, to know if your book, um, as a historian, will be taken up by a UK publisher or a US publisher, but particularly a British mm. publisher, because mm. I know for Australian historians, that is really tough. Pip, it's a great question and it's a sore point because I'm having a really difficult time getting it sold in the UK. Uh, Two-thirds of this book takes place in the UK. Uh, it is their story as much as it is our story. The line that I've been getting, or my publishers who are trying to sell it and my agent have been getting, is that because 2018, the year that my book came out, was the centenary of some British women getting the partial vote, um, that there's been a, um, a flood of suffrage publishing in, in England and that, that it's saturation point. And the fact that no one has told this story um, doesn't seem to matter. And I have a little theory about this, which is that the Poms didn't like to be told how to do their politics a uh, hundred years ago, and they don't like to be told how to understand their history now. So, um, uh, but I'm planning to, to self-fund to go over there in September and um, to London and do some talks around London um, at some of the um, institutions and at the... Um, and at, at King's College, London, the, at Australia House, just because I think that it's a story that needs to be told on, on home ground as well. Perhaps we could crowd... Yeah, <laughs> we're going to crowdsource the funding for that, everybody, so that's, that's okay. All right, so uh, we do have to wind up the session. Um, I, I loved all of these books. Please come and buy copies and have the authors sign them. And thank again, Claire Coleman, Jock Sarong, Claire Wright. Thank you. Thank you, thank you I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2019 Newcastle Writers' Festival. Save the date for next year's festival, April 3 to 5, 
and follow us on Facebook for regular updates.